When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I want two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Welcome to Insights, everyone. Today, we're excited to have Ryan Dusick on the show. Ryan's the former drummer and was a founding member of the band Maroon 5, one of the most popular groups in the world. Dusick was even part of the band that preceded Maroon 5, Kara's Flowers, which he and Adam Levine, Jesse Carmichael, and Mickey Madden founded in 1994, while they were still in high school. Today, Ryan's an associate marriage and family therapist, a mental health professional focusing on anxiety and sobriety. He's also a published author with a new book out now titled Harder to Breathe, a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all, and finding recovery. Ryan works at the Missing Peace Center for Anxiety in Agora Hills, California, where he's spreading the message that recovery is possible. We're thrilled to have him on the show today, and we hope his message has a positive impact on each of you who are listening. From Diddy TV, here's Amy Wright with Ryan Dusick on Insights. Let's talk about your book, Harder to Breathe, but before we get there, I just wanted to kind of go back and let's talk a little bit about um, you know, the this, this starting of Maroon 5 and the band, because that kind of leads into the book and what you experienced and where you are today and all that kind of fun stuff. So, um, so where, did, where did you grow up, Ryan? I grew up in L.A., Los Angeles, California, uh, pretty much right in the middle of the city in a little neighborhood called Carthay Circle. Um, and, but I've, I've lived all over the city and I've lived in LA my whole life with the exception of the touring and traveling that I've done. Um, but, uh, let's see LA. Yeah. I mean, we started the band at Brentwood high school, which was a kind of a, uh, you know, rich preppy college prep school, uh, which I didn't really feel like I fit in at at all personally. Um, you know, my family did did fine, but this, these were the the uber affluent kids, you know, of uh, Brentwood and the Valley and the Palisades and stuff like that, Malibu. Um, but, you know, there were four guys there that played music and we were all on the same page and kind of uh, a group of misfits. Um, I, I've known Adam since I was a little kid. 
um we were like family not family friends but uh, you know friends of friends um and so i had started a band with him when i first started playing the drums when i was like 12 years old and we were really silly <laughs> uh but a few years down the line we were both at brentwood and that's when we really hit it off and he was friends with jesse and mickey um and there was just a, a natural chemistry between the four of us um i was a uh, two grades ahead of the rest of them and i had played in bands in the school band and my older brother's band um for a couple of years there so i had a little more experience and they weren't they were just getting started you know playing at uh, the homecoming dance and stuff like that um so i'm wondering what a 12 year old plays when you play together <laughs> 12. <laughs> what exactly did you actually play well, you have to imagine at uh, 12, it was probably about 1989 for me. Um, and uh, that was the era of Guns N' Roses and uh, Motley Crue and a lot of other hair bands of course. on that strip. And uh, Adam and I started a band with a friend of ours, Adam Salzman, who was really into that stuff. Uh, that Not that we weren't, but <laughs> he was really into that stuff. Uh, but I, I think I learned how to twirl my sticks like Tommy Lee, you know, before I learned how to play a beat, probably. <laughs> so well, you know, it's important we, to look good while you play the drums, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. Especially at that time. <laughs> Very much so. So uh, when did you start playing drums? Were you a kid? Really little? Or was that more sort of around 12, 12 13 years old? Yeah, I was a baseball guy when I was a kid. Uh, mm -hmm. Music didn't really, uh, what, I didn't get the music bug until my brother, older brother started playing uh, electric guitar when he was 14 and I was 10, 11. Um, at 12, I begged my parents for a drum set uh, and they said, no, it's too loud. And then Christmas morning I woke up and there was a an old jazz kit in our nice. living room. So obviously have to thank them for that. Um, and I, you know, I just dove into it headfirst at that point. I was really inspired. And um, it, my dad tells a funny story because my brother like learned to play guitar really fast. He was a lead guitarist in a, in a band within like six weeks of starting to play, just practicing, staying up all night. And um, and I, when I was begging him, I said to him, um, I, he says that I was crying. I don't remember crying, but I, he says <laughs> I was crying to him. And I said, Dad, the the drums are inside of me in the same way that they were inside of Josh. The guitar was inside of Josh. The drums are inside of me, just waiting to come out. So he couldn't say no to that. Maybe that was just me being smart. <laughs> I was going to say, that's a pretty impassioned play for a kid. So yeah. as a parent, I'm sure you had to pay attention to it. Yeah. Um, well, so you played baseball and, and now you're playing music. Was there ever a time where, where you're thinking, which way do I go? Do I go music? Do I go baseball? No, it was kind of just, uh, I kind of switched over. I had problems pitching. Uh, my arm, I had arm injuries pitching. Um, I had been a really good pitcher in Little League and up into um, high school. And at age 14, 15, I was having arm problems. Um, and at the same time, that was when the music was becoming uh, more serious for me and just, you know, started playing in my brother's band at that time and playing at the Whiskey and the Roxy and the Troubadour uh you know the main clubs in hollywood all age clubs um and so it was i think i get after 10th grade it was either play summer league uh baseball and continue to frustrate myself with the pitching injuries i was having um or go out and play more gigs and i chose 
the rock life, which is kind of weird that, you know, the arm injuries didn't really bother me playing the drums at that time. Um, I couldn't pitch the way I wanted to, but drums, I, I felt great. It just seemed natural. It seemed like where my, my passion was and where my body wanted to be at that point. Did you ever play the belly up? I'm wearing the belly up t-shirt. The belly today. up, that's down <laughs> south, right? Yeah, San Diego yeah. area, kind of a kind of a big venue that a lot of guys go through, play there. Seems like it'd be, it would have been on your on your list. Yeah, I think in the Maroon 5 songs about Jane days, we played there three, four times, opening once for Nika Costa, uh, which was a fun tour, and then opening for uh, Carl Denson's Tiny Universe. I have a memory for these things. The other guys don't <laughs> know. How I, but then we ended up headlining there, I think, when we had our first uh, headlining tour. So before Maroon 5, you guys started another band, right? And, um, and you even got signed to a label at that point. So what was the name of that band? Yeah, Cara's Flowers uh, was the name of the band originally. Um, we started the band in 94. So we were actually a band for eight years before Songs About Jane. Um, and we had a record deal as Cara's Flowers. Um, a lot of people mispronounce it as Cara's Flowers, which always used to aggravate us. And part of the reason why we changed the, the name. Was there an actual Cara? There was a Cara. She was a girl that went to Brentwood with us. And I had a crush on her. <laughs> so there was a whole story there that's in my book harder to breathe um which was a you know we we started the band the night that was car's birthday um and adam being the adventurous spirit that he is um he recommended that we go sneak out of my parents house and go deliver flowers well the idea wasn't originally to deliver flowers it was just to go wake her up and annoy her i guess <laughs> in the middle of the night uh it ended up being this long journey and we ended up picking up flowers on the street along the way and, and getting to her house at like four or five in the morning. <laughs> so, and then that was the night that we like wrote our first songs and we like had this epic bond over this adventure we took. So that was how we became Cars Flowers. And yeah, we, we got signed uh, right out of high school uh, to Reprise Warner Brothers and made a record that everyone was, you know, promising was going to be as big as the Beatles. And it sold about 2,000 copies. <laughs> so what did you learn from that experience that you guys applied to later? Because obviously, when you put out your first Maroon 5 album, it was, it was a whole different ball game, and, and that was a meteoric rise. So you must have learned something from the first experience. Yeah, we learned a lot from that experience. Um, some great things and some things not to do, you know. Um, that was like a crash course. I kind of look at it as like that was going to high school or going to college for the music industry before we actually, you know, uh, made it. Um, but I guess what we learned more than anything was that nothing is a, a sure bet. You know, there's <laughs> we signed with a major record label. We had the top, you know, uh, managers and agents and attorneys and everything. And it was one of those deals that, they don't make anymore. I don't think, you know, it was the, it was the nineties and it was, uh, they were promised to spend a million dollars on us. And, uh, you know, everything was high class. We were in a top notch studio with a top notch producer and all that stuff. So it seemed like just inevitable that that would lead to, you know, success on a global scale. Um, we, I think more than anything, what we learned is that nothing takes the place of good old fashioned hard work, 
and you know doing it in the grassroots kind of way which is what we ended up doing um on the songs about jane um because with that record it was really just kind of put it out see if it sticks uh throw a bunch of money at it um if there was more of a marketing campaign than that we didn't we weren't aware of it we didn't see it it was just it was that was the old world of the music business it was they would sign 10 bands in a year spend a million dollars on each of them and one of them would hit and that would you know pay for everything when they had one massive multi-platinum record um we just didn't realize we were pretty naive you know we just we didn't realize how the how the business worked um but the next time around you know we made songs about jane for like a quarter of the budget um we chose a record label that was an indie label it was three guys and so we knew we were going to get a lot of personal attention the the people that we signed on to represent us our our manager and our uh attorney and stuff like that were all people that were a little younger a little hungrier a little more had something to prove and were willing to do the work as much as we were. We were dedicated to going out on the road for however long it took and building up a fan base in you know the old-fashioned grassroots way. So we we learned you know the work ethic and the and the sort of um, that if you want to make it, there's really no shortcuts. <laughs> well, did you uh, you all went to college? Was it um, were you all in the same college, or did you kind of disperse at that point? Uh, well, I was I think the only one that finished college i went to ucla um adam and jesse took a semester at a college in in new york uh called five towns college it was a music school i think um that was just at a moment in the band's life when we were at a sort of a crisis we didn't know which way we were going the first album had failed and we were already kind of past it in terms of style we kept we were trying a lot of different new uh genres you know and it was a little confusing we were all kind of on different pages um and adam and jesse i think we're getting frustrated with me and mickey just in terms of not being on the same page and them wanting to control the direction i think in terms of style more and um as the main songwriters and and they just i think we needed a minute to kind of take a step back and see where we were at uh so they went for a semester to new york uh mickey and i both went to ucla back to back to ucla for me mickey for the first time he was in the theater program i was in the english program um and then adam and jesse came back after that semester and we reunited and all of a sudden we had a new direction and a sort of a, a rejuvenated bond between the four of us and we were more on the same page in terms of what we were trying to do uh, musically and as fate would have it fortunate for me um in the three years between there you know when we got back together and when the next record deal came i was able to finish my degree at ucla and get a bachelor's in english so that all worked out pretty well for me i was gonna say so you had that kind of going for you at that point you could just focus on the music and so how did you all get on the same page musically because that's not always the easiest thing and you know you have to kind of all be in that same headspace when it turns in terms of the genre or the type of music that you're going to put out so how did you guys do that yeah, I don't know if it was fate or uh, divine intervention or what, because we were pretty scattered and all over the place. I mean, if you listen to demos around 98, uh, 99, every single one sounds different, like we're a totally different band. Um, we're just trying out a lot of different styles. But at, when Adam and Jesse went to New York, for whatever reason, the music that they were listening to um, 
was like the same music that I was listening to back home. And it was stuff that we hadn't really been inspired by before as a band. Uh, it was stuff from our youth, like Michael Jackson and Prince. But then it was also like Stevie Wonder was a major influence uh, and other, you know, classic soul, Marvin Gaye, uh, that, Sam Cooke, that kind of stuff. And funkier groove based uh, hip hop and R&B. We were, Adam was really into the Lauren Hill record. I was really into um, the D'Angelo record, which he was really into as well. Um, so we, strangely enough, they came home and we were like all of a sudden on the same page again and uh, doing our best impression of kind of more beat driven, groove based uh, music. And it just kind of clicked. We all were like inspired again and really kind of pushing each other to try new things. So you put out songs about Jane, and it, it starts off on kind of a slow build and over a few years and eventually went quadruple multi-platinum, I think. Yeah. It was a huge album for you guys. Were you, you put it out. Were you touring around the world? What were you guys doing? Yeah, well, as I said earlier, um, the plan was to really go out there and do it grassroots, and the, the label was dedicated to keeping us on the road and really just building up a fan base so we knew off the bat that the record was not going to be coming out for a while that we weren't going to have a hit for at least a year um because this wasn't going to be one of those one and done you know radio plays kind of things because strangely enough as much as it now seems like a pop record at the time the industry didn't know what to do with it because they thought every label passed on us like saying that it was it was neither rock nor R&B nor pop. It was kind of in between all of those things. And they were all suggesting we, you know, pick a lane. <laughs> and we said, no, we want to be unique. The fact that we're a little bit of all those things, I think, makes us have more, you know, we stand out a little bit more and maybe have some more staying power. Um, so we put, we went on the road at the start of 2002. Um, the record didn't come out until the summer of 2002. Uh, and it, the first week it sold like two or 3000 copies, maybe 5,000 copies. And then it went down and then it just slowly picked up like a hundred copies a week. Like wherever we went, you know, on tour opening for other artists and stuff, we would sell another 50 copies there. And then, you know, the next week, another hundred copies and somewhere else. And it, so we could see it like week by week that it was just, you know, gathering a little bit of steam each month. Uh, and then harder to breathe they took to radio as the first single very wisely as a kind of more modern rock sound. Uh, and they literally just been like old fashioned going into every radio station. One by one, we walked in with our acoustic guitars and, you know, try to charm the pants off of every radio programmer in the country. And over a matter of like six months, we finally had, uh, you know, a moderate radio hit and, a gold record and did our first headlining tour in the fall of 2003. Um, and so we were literally two years into touring on songs about Jane when this love came out as a single and it came out internationally and then it really started to blow up. And so, yeah, it, the overnight success that took a decade. <laughs> yeah. That's the hard work that you were talking about. It is hard work. Um, and, you know, I was wondering if you could really do that today because the whole corporate radio, you know, it's become so corporate that going to radio stations and saying, here, play this, you know, a lot of the DJs don't even have that latitude anymore. 
Yeah, I mean, I'd be lying to, if I said that I know exactly how the industry works in that regard now. But yes, it does seem like it's a very different world. Um, of, of course, our label's approach was not the norm at that time either. Uh, things were going more online at that point, becoming more corporate. Um, and, you know, when I say the old fashioned way, I'm talking about the 1950s, you know, when you would just get in a truck and head down to the South and get it going to walk into a radio station and give them the, you know, the 45 or whatever and say, play this record. Uh, people weren't doing that in the eighties and nineties either. You know, it was much more of a big, big money kind of corporate uh, adventure in those days. So, but th that's, that's what we liked about it. We thought, you know, this is, this is a much more, um, I don't know, tangible way of day by day uh, earning what you, what you get. So who were you opening for? And was, was that really helpful as well, depending on who the particular band was or artist was? Yeah, uh, we were really fortunate to open for some great artists and artists that I think uh, their audiences were well suited to what we were doing and, and diverse in terms of the different kinds of audiences we were playing for. The first couple tours we did, we, I, I mentioned Nika Costa. That was, I think, the second tour we did. The first one was Michelle Branch who had a big hit at the time. So there was the kind of the pop audience and then Nika Costa had kind of a little bit more of a um, soul, um, more diverse audience. And uh, after that, let's see. And the, it, well, there were a bunch of tours in the summer. We did a, like an outdoor festival uh, with on the main stage with Cheryl Crow and train um, and Ziggy Marley. And then we were on the second stage with a bunch of other uh, newer acts and we started that tour on like opening the second stage. And by the end of the tour, we were headlining the, the second stage, I think. So that was kind of how that went. Um, but, at, but at the end of that first year is when we started getting like real big headlining opening gigs for um, we opened for John Mayer uh, in, in the fall or winter of that year. And uh, and then in 2003, Matchbox 20. Um John Mayer was a was a real big uh, proponent of, uh, you know, giving us kind of a lot of exposure. He was a friend of James from uh, the Berkeley School of Music. They did a, a summer semester there, I think. Um, and so when the timing was right, we approached him and he was all excited. He loved the record. And so he was really, really kind and gracious to give us some opening spots. And that turned into in 2003, we did a whole tour with him. We did a tour with Counting Crows. Uh, so yeah, before we even headlined, we were we were playing arenas and amphitheaters with some major acts that you know were uh, pop and rock and soul and stuff like that. So very cool. Any advice these guys were giving you along the way? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we you know we heard the same advice over and over again, which was on your first album, say yes to everything, you know, because when you say yes to the concert promoters and the and the radio stations and whoever else is asking things of you, um, they're going to see that you really worked hard. And when you come back around, they're going to want to work for you. Uh, but if you say no, they're not going to ask again. Right. right. So uh, we heard that story from uh, actually you two. We, we ran into at the top of the pops in London uh, at the BBC and Bono and edge uh were in the dressing room next to us they were playing on the roof that night and and they said that i mean we we were like two years into it at that point so we obviously had already adopted that 
bad advice. Uh, but it was still good advice. I don't know if it's great advice from a mental health perspective, because saying yes to everything is not uh, great boundaries <laughs> and you can burn yourself out. <laughs> um, but it was certainly in terms of making friends in the industry and knowing that you can set up a, a career that's going to be um, have, have legs. So how were you guys dealing with the fame? Because that was a really fast rise to fame. And I'm sure there was a lot of fun parts of it. Uh, were there any challenges to it or was it just a fun ride at that point? Uh, there were a lot of challenges to it for me in particular. Um, I think for all of us at different points, I mean, you can imagine being on the road for four years straight um, and it was a slow climb, but we were literally, you know, you have to be on pretty much 24 seven. There's not a lot of downtime in that especially on that first album when you're saying yes to everything it's like you wake up in the morning and you have to click on and whether it's being on stage or being in a radio station or doing a video shoot or a photo shoot or doing a meet and greet uh with fans or industry or there's always something that you have to show up and be on for which for some people is probably wonderful um i'm a bit of an introvert more by nature i like being social but there's like a limit to it you know um, I need my time to kind of recuperate and yeah, settle down. So there was none of that. And that definitely took its toll on me. Um, I'm also kind of a perfectionist and, a, by nature, I was, I was kind of a high, strung, anxious person. Um, and performing night after night and, you know, being in that position, um, even though I, I didn't experience it really as stage fright, I was excited to perform but it was just a lot of energy, a lot of adrenaline, a lot of um, excitement that turned into anxiety at a certain point for me that um, definitely took its toll. I know that the other guys felt the challenges of that at different times in different ways as well, uh, which I touch on a little bit in the book. For Adam, I think that, uh, you know, just singing, he was he was not a trained singer and I was not a trained drummer. Um, he had to learn how to adapt to performing every night and how to really sell it. I think that he had to kind of step into a whole other persona um, of a front man, which he hadn't fully done before. I think um, that time in, in the band's life, um, realizing that a lot was on his shoulders in terms of delivering um, a great show and everything and, and being the, the uh, charismatic front man that we needed him to be. And he, he really did step up, but I think that at, at a certain point it was a ch real challenge for him um, feeling that pressure as well. You know, I hadn't really thought about it, but I, I read this book one time and they were talking about the difference between introverts and extroverts. And they said the difference is an introvert needs downtime to recharge and an extrovert actually recharges through social contact. And yeah. so it's, two very different people. And, uh, you know, you're in a situation like you guys are in where you're touring. You don't have a choice. Whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, you're going to have to be out there day after day after day performing. And like you were saying, you're a perfectionist on top of it. So there's no way for every, anyone really to perform at their top level every single day. So there's going to be days that you probably feel like, hey, I could have done better with that performance or something like that. And that can kind of weigh on you as well, I would think. Yeah, it's funny. Um, 
I think that my gauge as to how good a show was, was a little off because I was so consumed with how well I was doing, <laughs> <laughs> you know, cause I put so much pressure on myself to be, yeah. uh, to be perfect at, that I was worrying mostly about, you know, did I do every fill in the set properly? Did I, um, did I hold a steady beat throughout the whole set that, you know, did everything go exactly as I imagined it in my mind? And if there were one or two or three or four moments in the set that didn't meet that standard, that it was a terrible set, you know? Um, and then sometimes I would walk off stage and I'd be like, oh, that was so bad. And Adam would, would be like, wow, the energy was so great. The crowd was crazy. Did you see that? And I, I, I didn't, I really didn't notice because I was so consumed um, with how I was doing. And then there were other times when I was like, this, that was perfect. Oh my God, I nailed that. Everything from the first count in to the last beat was like, perfect i did everything exactly the way i wanted to and he was like there was no energy it was dead like the, that show had the i don't know what was up with the crowd or whatever he was out front of course he could feel the energy of the crowd more uh and he was more concerned obviously with how it was going on over to them um he could be hard on himself too though he was definitely uh a, a victim of the same kind of i think perfectionism and want, wanting everything to go exactly as he imagined it to be um he definitely has that element of his personality too so i think we relate yeah so at some point your injury started kind of resurfacing the injury you injury you talked about earlier maybe it was from baseball but you said that initially drums didn't do that to you but um at some point that starts to come back and when was that yeah looking back on it now i mean it, it was a very physical injury at the time and with the benefit of hindsight i'm able to see that um there was also a, a mental health uh, element to it if not a, a major part of it <laughs> the psychology of it was definitely a, a big factor um the pitching injury came back um my right shoulder definitely started hurting i started having a lot of inflammation in my right shoulder um in the middle of our first headlining tour i think when we jumped up to playing a long sets and traveling a lot uh, and then we started going overseas. Um, I always had an issue with jet lag and sleep. Sleep was a problem for me in general, but on tour in particular. Um, and so when I was jet lagged, it was like there were times when it was like 48 hours without sleep and then having to mm. perform and that kind of thing. And so it was taking its toll on my body, but also just on my general constitution. Um, and w I knew that I had this joint issue and I started kind of contorting my mechanics, which were already flawed because I was not a trained musician. I was, I was self-taught. Um, but if I look at the early videos of me, my mechanics were actually not too bad. They were pretty fluid. It was just that my sticking technique was not, not really there. But, um, but my already flawed mechanics became worse when I was playing through pain and when I was playing mm -hmm. through exhaustion. Um, and it became confounding because it went from joint pain, uh, a lot of discomfort to nerve issues, not being able mm -hmm. to coordinate things the way that I used to. And so, I mean, I had a legitimate nerve problem that made um, drumming difficult, but I realized now that a part of that was that my body was just telling me that I needed to stop because I was driving myself into the ground and there really was no way to stop at that point, the short of just quitting. Um, I don't think. 
Um, and it's, you know, essentially what, what ended up happening, but I look at it back. I look back at it now as uh, kind of traumatic. I had a hard time looking at it as trauma for a long time because I, I reserved that word for, um, you know, horrific things that people live through that I, I didn't think this um, compared to because there were no, you know, bullets whizzing by my head and this wasn't, you know, childhood physical trauma or anything like that. Um, but trauma is relative and my body and my mind. And as I said, my whole constitution was put through something that dragged on for a long time and took its toll on me. And every time I thought I would have a break there, it's just the, the breaks evaporated and more and more, I think my body just kind of said, you're, you're done. Well, it had to be really hard to go through the decision to leave the band at that point because they were, everything was going great with the band, right? And mm. you're doing all the, the right things and you're getting on the best tours and it's just, everything is going gangbusters for you guys. And here you are in this position to make a decision to leave. So what was that process like for you and you know, how did you actually get to that point? Well, it wasn't exactly my decision, <laughs> but there was really no other decision to be made. Um, I, I went down uh, on tour a couple times and tried to come back. And I did successfully the first time. I took some time off and then came back and we played for a while and had some of our some of my best shows during that time, I think, even though, like I said, my mechanics were a little contorted. But uh, it just kept rising up again, the problems. And and eventually the band, you know, said, like, you need to go home. You need to do whatever you have to do to figure out what's wrong and to solve it. And um, they were really great about it, to be honest. I mean, they were we were brothers, you know, since we were teenagers and in this thing together. And they were very supportive. They, of course, couldn't have understood what was going on for me because I couldn't even understand what was going on for me. Um, but they were basically like, go home. If it takes six months, if it takes a year, um, just get well and we'll be here when you get back. Um, how many bands would say that, right? I mean, that's, mm. that's pretty, pretty sweet um, of them. So uh, I did that. But what happened was it just got more and more frustrating. Like nobody could give me really a straight answer as to what the problem was. Um, I felt really defeated and it dragged on for like a year and a half of me just trying to figure out how to overcome this thing. And it wasn't really happening. And the band, you know, the whole album cycle ended at that point and, um, the band was working on new material for a follow-up album, which was already four years and then five years, you know, down the line, uh, from songs about Jane. So it just came to the point where it was like, we need to move ahead and, Adam said to me, you know, even if you could come back and, and play the drums on this record, um, I'm really worried, you know, that you haven't solved what this is so that we're going to have a major tour booked, international tour booked in support of the new album. And then you're going to go down again. Um, so I understood that. I, obviously, I, it's it's easier for me to talk about now uh, with maturity. <laughs> <laughs> I was in my 20s and in a lot of pain at the time. So it obviously was not um, something that I took well at that time. But I, really, they, they didn't have any other choice other than to move on at that point. So that kind of brings me to Harder to Breathe because, you know, you kind of discuss all of this in the book. But then there was a whole journey after that you had to get through as well. Like you're saying, you had to deal with all that trauma. 
because that is trauma. And that's a young age to go through something like that. It was a big cycle of, you know, start here, rise to fame, and now you actually have to leave the band. And um, so why Harder to Breathe? Why did you pick the name that, from that particular single? And what did that kind of mean to you? And, and how does it apply to the book? Um, it, you know, the, the name Harder to Breathe has a lot of meaning in this context for me. Um, I actually picked the name before I started writing the book. <laughs> to be honest, I sat down, um, I was in grad school getting my master's degree in clinical psychology at Pepperdine University. And you have to do a lot of introspection um, to be a therapist. You know, you have to really figure out your own stuff, or at least you should. Some therapists maybe don't, but I was already in a really good place because I had been, uh, I got sober in 2016. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. And, you know, all of the ways in which I had struggled after leaving the band um, for a decade, really, um, was my whole life was turning around at that point. And I would, that's why I had gone back to school and everything. Um, so I had a new sense of purpose in my life. And writing the book for me uh, was an extension of that journey. It was a way to tell my story in a way that hopefully could be helpful to some people. Um, I knew that I had a story to tell, but then I realized when I was in grad school that it had a happy ending, um, and that it was a hopeful book. It wasn't just a sad, heartbreaking book. Uh, so I knew that it could be inspiring to people and that it could help some people and harder to breathe the title. Um, first off, that song was a song that, we, you know, I really killed myself over. We played that song, you know on every TV show and every radio station across the country and world uh, over and over and over again. And it's kind of ironic that the, that the, <laughs> the refrain is it's getting harder and harder to breathe as you know, my life on the road was getting more and more difficult for me. And it also goes back to just reflecting on the anxiety that kind of led to some of those problems. And that became a major problem for me after I left the band, because after I left the band, I was very depressed. I was drinking too much. And then anxiety disorder became a major issue for me. Panic disorder, even almost agoraphobia at the end. I just, I couldn't mm -hmm. really function out in, in the world. Um, and so if any, anyone who's had a panic attack can relate to the, the term harder to sure. breathe. Um, so on, on a lot of levels, it just felt like, oh my God, this is the book I need to write because it's not just about, here's some fun stories about the band, which it has, but it's about my story of what I struggled with even before the band, certainly uh, in the touring years, um, and then after, and what it took to overcome all that, what it took to get to a place of hopefulness and recovery. Um, and here I am as a therapist and an advocate now, um, talking about this stuff, teaching people about this stuff, and it just felt like that was the only name that the book could have, Harder to Breathe. So what, what, what led you to recovery? I mean, how did you start that process? And was there a moment when you said, I've got to do something here? Or was it a gradual process for you? Well, it was gradual. Um, but there was a, a moment, as most alcoholics will tell you, you know, a sort of moment of clarity. Um, I did what, what every alcoholic does which is try to find every rationalization and every way of sort of deluding myself that the, the drink was the answer 
to my problems, even when it was the evidence was very clear that the opposite was true, you know. Um, but I was really struggling. And, and on top of the the alcoholism, I mean, underneath the alcoholism, really, um, was a grieving process. You know, I had I had had this wonderful experience starting the band, building the band up to where it became and, and achieving what we finally did after a decade of work. And my identity was wrapped up in that. And my mm -hmm. social circle was wrapped up in that. And my sense of uh, self-definition and happiness and everything was wrapped up in that. So losing that and having to walk away from it just as it was reaching its apex um, was devastating mm -hmm. and a loss that, you know, you don't think you have to grieve things other than people that you lose in life, but losing that whole part of my life, that identity mm. was something I needed to grieve. And I think it was just, it took a decade really for me to get to a place where I hit rock bottom with the alcoholism. I hit rock bottom sort of spiritually, just feeling really disconnected from the world with all of my anxiety and everything and isolated and it took a few humbling moments, um, as it does some people. Fortunately, it wasn't the kind of thing where I was on the street and begging, you know, for money or like anything really um, permanent um, to my health or, or otherwise. So I'm really fortunate in that regard that it, that it I, I kind of hit a spiritual bottom and not that kind of a bottom. But um, recovery started when I realized I just didn't want to live this way anymore. I was tired of feeling broken and feeling sick and and um, and so I went into rehab. I went to the Betty Ford Center um, out in the desert. And after I got past the initial phase of like detox and stuff, I started having having what you know people refer to as a spiritual awakening, um, which sound, always sounded cliche to me. I was like, what does that even mean? It's just kind of new age nonsense. But it's very tangible for me in that I was disconnected from the world and people um, and, and from living. And then all of a sudden I started feeling reconnected to people and the world and living. Um, I started feeling a sense of purpose in being of service to people, to my fellows showing up and being there for people uh, in telling my story uh, I, and realizing that I had some talents that I had forgotten about, you know, being a musician for so long. I was like, oh yeah, I used to be a pretty smart guy. I used to be pretty articulate uh, before all this. And I maybe I have something else to offer other than being the drummer in Maroon 5. And that was the first time in a long time that I, I had that feeling. And so it was inspiring. You know, it's like, oh, my God, I thought my life was just going to be like, you know, the rest of it is just going to be, oh, well, I had it good. And now I just kind of <laughs> have to live the rest of my life now to, oh, my God, I might have more good or even better uh, to come. And so I was I was just, you know, really really inspired by the spirit of recovery and um, wanted to give of what I was learning. And so I decided to become a therapist and write a book. <laughs> so how, how did you discover therapy as, as a profession? And, and um, obviously it, it's inspiring to you. And I think it's an amazing story in the book. Um, but uh, how did you make that decision and, and come to the conclusion that, hey, that's my new purpose? Well, um, when I finished my initial sort of outpatient program in recovery, I was less than a year sober. Um, the people that ran that place asked me to stay on as a volunteer and continue to work with some of the people there and lead some groups and 
um, just to kind of be a, a peer support and, and uh, co-leader of groups. And uh, I thought that was really a, a cool thing. And I thought it would be great just for my sobriety. And so I did that for two years, um, just showed up there and I was in classes, I was in groups, and I just kind of gave people, what, uh, you know, the things that I'd learned and told them my experience. And I kept getting a lot of good feedback, you know, just people saying, you know, thank you so much for for your help. And, um, you know, you, you have a great way of articulating the ideas of recovery and um and that, you know, when I told my story, it was, it was inspiring to them. So um, I was like, well, maybe there's something to this. And some people I knew were going back to school to get their master's degree. And people were telling me, you should consider the doing this for a living. And at my first response was like, well, I had never thought of that. But then now that you say it, it's like, it makes perfect sense. And so I just applied to a grad school. And within a month, I was in a clinical psychology master's program. Um, and I'm at first I thought I would just get my degree and become a therapist and go back to working in addiction recovery. Um, but my whole world kind of opened up and I realized I don't really know where it's headed exactly, but I know that I have a passion for psychology and for helping people, hopefully. And um, and so I had a new sort of lease on life and a new direction and purpose to become a therapist and just see you know what directions i could go in terms of being a service to people well and in harder to breathe it's a story of the formation of a band it's also the story of all that comes with that and um and then the, the triumphs and the the pitfalls and then obviously coming back from all that which is incredibly positive um so it is there is a band component to this but there is life there are life lessons in there I think, for anyone who reads the book. And so what would you say is the, the main takeaway that you want people to come away with reading from reading this book uh, uh, from your story? Well, the main takeaway when you finish the book um, is that there is hope even when it seems like there is no hope. Um, there are second acts in life. You know, you don't have to be defined by the thing that was so uh, tragic or traumatic. Um, that's the large arc of the story to me. That was the purpose for writing it. However, I would also say it's inspiring in a whole other way. It's, you know, the, the whole journey of the band is just a lot of fun. It's, it's really innocent in the early years. And, and then it becomes intense, obviously, as we become more... Um, more successful um and so that whole journey is inspiring in its own way just seeing kids sort of dreaming big dreams and pursuing them and what hard work and dedication can get you and just also reflecting back on what i learned later in my life just how magical that was of a connection you know the spiritual connection between the four of us and then and then five of us um so i think hopefully it's inspiring in both of those ways in terms of creativity in terms of um, aspiring to do something great um, and just enjoying the process, you know, the journey. Um, but then also, you know, when bad things happen in your life, when when things become really difficult and challenging for you, there's always hope. Um, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of living proof of that. Well, Ryan, um, I'm so glad to meet you and hear that you're doing so well. It's a very inspiring story that I think a lot of people will will read and, and apply to their own lives. 
So I'm um, harder to breathe. Go pick up a copy. But uh, we really thank you for stopping by Diddy TV and visiting with us. Come see us in Memphis. <laughs> I would love to. This was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. All right, folks, we hope you enjoyed hearing from Ryan Dusick on his new book, Harder to Breathe, a memoir of making Maroon 5, losing it all, and finding recovery. Thanks to Ryan for joining us on Insights to share his story. Hopefully it inspires those of you who are listening who needed to hear his message. We appreciate him giving us a behind-the-scenes look at his journey, and we look forward to seeing what he achieves in the years to come. From all of us at Diddy TV, thanks again for tuning in today, and we hope to see you again soon right here on Insights. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.